Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, a podcast where Superman still stands for truth, justice, and the American way. This is episode 44. My name is Michael Bradley, and with me once more is Charlie Niemeyer. Hello, hello. Since Charlie's in the house, or in the Skype, as it might be, that can only mean mean one thing, and that is this episode we'll be looking once more at the Superman radio serial, specifically the third storyline. Yay! And this is the first time we've recorded since, uh, well, really, since the announcement and the first two episodes, because we recorded those before we even announced that you were coming on. For all the radio episodes, so yes, it feels kind of weird because they both played already. So it's like, wow. Yeah. So have you been swamped with fan mail and groupies and? Yeah, I've got all these thrilling adventures of Superman groupies. Um, unfortunately, they're like forty years old and buck teeth, but it's not. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah. You know, you never want to turn them away. The the thrilling adventures of Superman of America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. Uh, I, it's more than I have for my show. I got like a couple of kids and a midget. And a midget? Yeah. Well, don't discount the midgets because. Oh, they're they're. It's a pretty powerful midget. He's he's pretty rough. <laughs> um. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> We're at a loss of words, I think, with that. <laughs> yeah. Um. But uh, back in episode forty-one, the last time Charlie was here. We had a bit of a difference of, of opinion on the end of the story. Did you have a chance to re-listen to those episodes? I did. I still think it sounds like an airplane. Okay. Oh, I re-listened to episode nine to see if Clark flew up as Superman or, or using an airplane. And Clark runs out of the planet telling Perry to call the airfield to get the plane ready. He changes to Superman and then flies off saying to himself, If the mask can fly, so can I. I'll get to the field and take a plane myself. So ah. I'm not sure how I missed that when I was doing my synopsis. E- even re-listening to the rest of the episode, it should have been obvious, but somehow I missed it. So you were it's right. all right. Yeah. It's okay. It takes a strong man to say that someone else was right yeah. on his own show. Yeah. So. <laughs> but no, I'm glad you caught it because if somebody, someone would have wrote in, I would have felt pretty foolish of not not catching that. So. Yeah, it's, well, I, I probably would have laughed, but it's all right. Yeah, yeah that's how it goes. <laughs> hey, everybody. My name is Michael Bailey, and this is the trailer with a truly epic ending to my new show about Batman, appropriately titled Bailey's Batman Podcast. Bailey's Batman Podcast is a weekly program that looks at a month in the life of the Dark Knight Detective, starting with the books bearing a March 1983 cover date, which is where my solid run of the characters' comics begins, and moving forward until, well, at least until the books that came out in 2005, because that's where the solid run ends. Each week, I will give you a full synopsis and review of every major ongoing Batman title, with brief stops along the way to look at the important specials, miniseries, one-shots, and Elseworld stories just to keep things interesting. I'll also be telling you what other books Batman appeared in that month, as well as what was going on elsewhere in the DCU. It is going to be all Batman all the time as I look at over 20 years of the character's history. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the epic ending to this trailer. You ready? 
the first appearance of Jason Todd. Death in the Family. Nightfall. Epic. No Man's Land. Do you have chills yet? All of that and more will be covered on Bailey's Batman Podcast. Every Tuesday at Bailey's Batman Podcast.com. Alright, so the third storyline from the Superman radio serial was six parts long, and it ran episodes 10 through 15 of the serial, which ran March 4th through March 15th, 1940. Storylines in both the Daily and the Sunday strips came to an end just before this arc started, so they were both running new stories that we'll be looking at in upcoming episodes. In relation to the comics, Action Comics number 24 came out a week before... No, a week after this ended. Yeah, okay. a week after this ended, and I'll have more on that next episode. Uh, I've got I've got no specific specific information. If I can talk today, <laughs> no specific information on writers or directors. Uh, being that it's still early, it was probably still Bob Maxwell and Duke Duchovny and George Ludlum writing with Frank Chase directing. And our title is the North Star Mining Company. In his disguise of Clark Kent, news reporter for the Daily Planet. Superman has foiled the diabolical plans of the Yellow Mask, a maniac who thought himself emperor of the world. And now, a new adventure comes to the mild-spectacled reporter who is known to the city room as Clark Kent. Not knowing what strange and exciting days are directly ahead, Kent listens eagerly as a photographer brings word of a fire in one of the city's largest buildings. Listen. In episode 10, after hearing about the fire at the Sterling Tower, Clark begs to cover it himself. According to Mike, a planet photographer, the fire was believed to be incendiary and may have started at the offices of the North Star Mining Company. Also, there may be a girl trapped in the North Star offices, but none of the firefighters can reach her. After Lois chides Clark for being so awesome and wanting to help, Mike and Clark catch a cab to the Sterling Tower. On the way there, Clark and Mike talk about Lois, wondering why she's so tough on him. And Mike tells Clark that he doesn't have a chance with her because she's only got eyes for Superman. Arriving at the fire, they meet with the fire chief and learn that the trapped girl has disappeared from the windows. Clark tries asking some questions, but the chief just dismisses him because he's too busy with the fire. Mike suggests that they head for a building across the way to get a better view of the activities, and Clark tells Mike to go ahead while she calls in the story. Clark lets Perry know about the fire and that it is now a four-alarm fire and that the east wall is expected to come down at any time and that he won't be able to find out anything more until he can uh, find the fire marshal. Clark catches up to Mike as the wall is about to fall and they spot the girl at a window on the 20th floor, but none of the firefighters can see her. As smoke from the fire rolls in over the balcony, blinding Mike, Clark changes to Superman and takes off toward the girl. Hoping he's not too late, he uses the smoke as cover to get over to the building, breaks the glass, and enters, but doesn't see the girl. Busting deeper into the office, Superman uses his x-ray vision to spot her hiding in a closet, busts her out, and she faints. Creating a new exit out of the building, Superman finds that the wind has cleared out most of the smoke. Knowing that he might be seen, he takes off just before the east wall comes crashing down but he is spotted by the fire chief and a captain. 
Dropping down into a nearby alley, Superman changes back to Clark and runs off to find an ambulance doctor. Mike catches up with him, and with the doctor, all three return to the alley and meet up with the police chief. When asked about how Clark found the girl, Clark says he spotted her while on his way to call his paper, and the chief reveals that he saw a man fly out of the window. Although the girl is in shock, she comes to and just basically keeps saying, catch them, catch them, before passing out again. So she's loaded up into an ambulance and taken to the hospital, while Clark is left to wonder who she is, why she was there, and why, and, and what she meant by catch them. As our next episode begins, Clark sits in the reception room of the hospital waiting for the girl to recover. Meanwhile, two men in a sedan race through the night. They are Bartley Pemberton and Joseph Deneen, president and treasurer of North Star Mining Company. As they talk about the mysterious girl, Deneen turns on the radio to hear the news. Pemberton relishes in the fact that the North Star Mining is no more, saying that they had to do away with the girl. They then hear a news report and learn that the girl, who we find out was a secretary for the mining company, is still alive, but in critical condition. The announcer goes on to say that the district attorney is waiting to question her, and that police are looking to question Pemberton and Deneen as well. Upon hearing that the girl is still alive, Pemberton turns the car around and heads towards the hospital. The plan is for the two men to pose as the girl's uncle and cousin in order to gain access to her room and finish what they started. Back at the hospital, Clark speaks with a nurse. She tells him that the girl has recovered since it was mostly just shock and smoke inhalation that hurt her. Clark wants to speak to her, but the nurse tells him that she's sleeping, but that she had said something about a car and two men. Clark heads out to the patio and thinks about what the nurse said before taking to the skies as Superman for a look around. He thinks, correctly as it turns out, that the two men might be the missing North Star mining officers, Pemberton and Deneen. Unbeknownst to Superman, however, the two men have just arrived, and after parking their car, enter the hospital to see the girl. Shortly later, we catch up again with Superman, who, of course, has had no luck finding them despite searching more than 500 cars. Seeing another car, he drops into the road directly in, it, in its path. When he realizes the car isn't going to stop, Superman grabs the car, stopping it by force. After doing so, though, he realizes that the car is in fact a police car and flies off before the officers can question him. Arriving back at the hospital, Clark checks on the girl's status, and the nurse tells him that she had a couple relatives visit. Clark is surprised, saying he didn't know she had any family, and is suspicious that they're only showing up now when the girl's been hospitalized for a whole 12 hours. Clark begs the nurse to let him go in, even bribing her, saying that he'll put her picture in the paper. She finally relents, but goes to check on the girl first. Suddenly, screams ring through the hospital halls, and the nurse frantically looks for a doctor. It seems the two visitors had stabbed the girl and made a run for it. People scramble, trying to find the attackers as well as doctors to aid the girl. Clark slips away, calling back to the Daily Planet and gives them an update. He relates the events of the story we just heard and says the girl's status is unknown, to which the rewrite man replies, telling him to get more information and call back as soon as possible. And by episode 12, some time has passed, and we find out that the stabbing was not serious. The girl, Miss June Anderson, is now well enough to give Clark an interview, revealing that Pemberton, Pemberton and Deneen were the ones that stabbed her. She was their office secretary and discovered that they were swindlers, selling stock in a mine with no gold. 
One day, she discovered some papers and maps, and knowing that she had at least an hour before either of them would get to the office, began going through all their files. She continued to do this for quite some time before she was caught by Pember- Pemberton and Deneen. When they confront her, she lets them know that she's saved several of the papers, proving their crimes, and has them hidden where only she can find them. So they grabbed her, tied her up, and set fire to the building. When Clark asks about the papers, she reveals that she gave them to her brother, captain of the freight steamer Madison, and had them put no, had him put the papers in his safe. At that point, the nurse comes in, telling Clark that an orderly just let her know that the men came in in the black sedan, license plate 2406, which is still parked in the parking lot. So, switching to Superman, he flies off to the parking lot to check out the car. Since it's locked, he rips off the door and finds nothing but guns in the glove compartment. After rendering them useless, he is spotted by a parking attendant and has to take off again, heading back to the Daily Planet to write up the story as Clark Kent. Meanwhile, at a hideout near the waterfront, Pemberton and Deneen are waiting to find out whether June survived the stabbing. Pemberton decides to go to the Daily Planet to find out what they know. Meeting up with Clark as Dr. Ambrose, an investor in the North Star Mine, he soon learns that June's brother is the captain of a steamer and that she gave him a packet of papers. He also learns that the Madison is heading south to Charleston and that the DA will get the papers from the captain once the steamer docks the day after next. After he quickly leaves, Clark heads back to the hospital to talk to June again, where he mentions Dr. Ambrose, a name June doesn't recognize. Based on Clark's description of the man, June discovers that Ambrose was Pemberton in disguise. After calming her down off, I don't know how you want to call that, off camera, off panel, off microphone, (laughs) Clark changes to Superman and heads out to intercept the Madison. Meanwhile, Pemberton and Deneen have taken a boat out to also try to intercept the Madison. Catching up, they send out distress signals to get the steamer's attention. What will happen when Pemberton and Deneen board the Madison? Find out when Michael tells you about the next episode. Which, thankfully for you, you don't have to wait a week like the kids did back then, because I'm going to tell you right now. Yay! Pemberton and Deneen prepare to board the Madison and warn the pilot of their boat to wait and prepare to make a quick getaway. As they climb aboard, Captain Anderson orders the men taken to his cabin so he can find out why they sent the the, 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 uh, distress signal. Shortly, Pemberton tells the captain that they were sent by his sister June to retrieve the package of papers. The captain is skeptical and says he wants proof that June sent them, like a letter or something else written. When they can't provide any, any such proof, saying there wasn't time, the captain gets angry and says he doesn't believe them. He says if it was so important that they had to use a fake distress signal to flag them down, they should be able to prove what they claim. He says they'll get the package, but only after the ship docks at Charleston and he's able to speak to June himself by telephone. With their ruse of failure, Pemberton pulls a gun and orders Deneen to take the papers from the safe. However, the safe is locked, so they force the captain to take them down to the ship's hold, where the munitions are held. Once down in the hold, Deneen ties up the captain, and Pemberton explains that since they only need to make sure the papers are never found, the plan is to rig the munitions to blow, destroying the ship and the papers. Anderson tries to fight back, but only gets knocked out for his troubles, since just shooting him would be too noisy. Pemberton and Deneen then set about spreading gunpowder about the hold and setting the fire. The flames and smoke soon set off alarm bells on the ship. The crew runs frantically about, searching for the captain and making plans to abandon the doomed ship. Pemberton and Deneen are able to slip away in the panic and make a getaway in their own boat. 
Meanwhile, Superman, flying high overhead, spots the flaming ship and recognizes it as the Madison. He swoops down under the cover of fog as the crews begin to flee from the ship in lifeboats. Hearing about the missing captain, Superman decides to investigate. While clinging to the side of the burning ship, Superman uses his super hearing to listen inside the boat and hears a pounding noise. Breaking into the ship and in the hold, he hears the muffled voice of the captain and breaks through the door. The captain is able to warn about the explosives, but faints soon thereafter. Superman leaps out of the ship with the unconscious captain in his arms. After wrapping him in a life preserver, he leaves him near the, life, the lifeboats and then heads back to the ship to find the papers. Somehow, knowing exactly where they are, Superman heads directly to the captain's cabin and easily breaks into the safe before breaking through the wall, uh, breaking through the wall of the ship and flying off. Back outside in the water, the crew sees the unconscious body of Captain Anderson and pulls him into the lifeboat, just as the Madison explodes. And in episode 14, in Perry's office at the Daily Planet, Captain Anderson, June, and Clark meet up with Perry White to try and find out how the captain escaped from the steamer, but he just cannot explain it. Clark then shows that he has a package of papers, which he says was given to him by a friend in the Coast Guard. After June reveals that it is the same package she gave her brother, she shows everyone what was inside, including letters to a man named Bailey, who apparently has no relation to Michael Bailey, that practically admit what they are doing, maps of the North Star Mine, which is three miles south of Canyon City, and a report from the government assayer's office stating that the ore from the mine was worthless. So Clark leaves, changes to Superman, and heads out to Pemberton and Deneen's house at 23 Durant Street to look for more information. Knocking on the door as Clark, the Filipino houseboy denies him access. So Clark changes back to Superman and forcefully enters through the skylight on the roof, as most skylights are want to be at. The boy, the boy, the houseboy sees him and shoots him, but the bullets bounce off because he's Superman. Threatening him, Superman tries to get info out of the boy, but he still refuses. When the phone rings, Superman makes the houseboy answer it. Pemberton has the boy get some hidden traveler's checks and send them to John J. Jones. I almost want to say J. Jonah Jameson every time I see that. Okay. Uh, Pemberton has the boy get some hidden traveler's checks and send them to John J. Jones in Canyon City, Idaho. After threatening the houseboy to make sure he'll tell no one about him, Superman heads back to the planet. In Perry's office, Clark tells White that he thinks Pemberton and Deneen might be trying to ruin the mine. So with his editor's permission, Clark and the Andersons rent a plane and head out to Canyon City, hoping to beat the swindlers to the mine. Outside, ice begins to form on the wings, causing the plane to lurch. The pilot can't go down into warmer air due to the mountains, so Clark takes it upon himself to head out to the wing to try to knock off the ice, and then disappears. In what is possibly the worst cliffhanger we've had so far, we are left to wonder if Clark, who we know can fly, has plunged down to the mountain below. Um, as, Sorry. As, our, as our next episode starts, June frets about Clark's welfare, and Captain Anderson tells her to just chill out, despite the fact that a man, or who she thinks is a man, just fell off an airplane wing. And the pilot has other things to worry about as the plane suddenly lurches and goes into a tailspin. Meanwhile, Superman, or at least Clark Kent using his Superman voice, flies through the air, spots the out-of-control plane, and goes into action. Back inside, the pilot fights desperately to regain control of the plane, but he and the other passengers are soon surprised 
when the plane begins to slow and starts leveling off. The plane soon comes to a dead stop, and the trio of passengers realize they are on land. Exiting the plane, they find Clark Kent, who congratulates the pilot on a swell landing. He then heads off to find help, saying he saw some lights down the road before they can put up too many questions about how he survived, you know, falling off an airplane wing. Shortly, deep within the North Star Mine, Pemberton and Deneen work when Bailey brings them news from town that some guy and a couple of others arrived in a plane and are looking for the mine. After hearing the guy, quote, wears glasses and talks like an Easterner, because, you know, that description only fits one person in the entire world, Pemberton and Deneen surmise that it must be Clark Kent. Figuring Clark must be on his way to the mine by now, Pemberton tells Bailey to go back and intercept the car as they approach the mine. He is to tell Clark the paper the paper's editor is trying to get in touch with him and then take him back to town, but make sure he never actually gets there. With Clark out of the way, that will leave June and Captain Anderson at the mine and in the hands of Pemberton and Deneen. Posing as the sheriff, Bailey flags down the car and offers to, t- to give Clark a ride back to town. Clark goes with the fake sheriff and the captain and June wait, but are jumped by Pemberton and Deneen. Knocking the captain unconscious, they drag June down into the mine. Meanwhile, Clark gets curious about why it's taking so long to get back to town. Bailey tells him not to worry about it before pulling the car over and forcing Clark out at gunpoint. Clark tries to run, but Bailey shoots. He thinks he's killed Clark, but soon finds himself face-to-face with Superman, who crushes the car and knocks Bailey out with a slap. The imposter taken care of, Superman speeds back to the mine to save the captain in June. Dropping into the shaft, he overhears Pemberton and Deneen saying they're going to blow the mine. With no time to find an entrance, Superman begins digging straight through the very wall of the mine itself. Pemberton monologues, as all good villains are known to do, relishing over June's impending death before he and Deneen make a hasty exit from the shaft. Smashing through the last wall, the last of the mine's walls, Superman grabs the hysterical June and leaps out of the shaft just as it explodes. Sometime later, June tells Clark how she was saved by a tremendous man in a blue costume with a flowing red cape. A Superman! But before Clark can respond, the captain shows up with Pemberton and Deneen in hand. Clark points out that the explosion in the shaft revealed a vein of gold, and that the mine actually is good after all. The people Pemberton thought he cheated will get their money back and more. Clark then heads off, saying he's going to turn in the fake sheriff and call call the paper to phone in the story. But another mystery is brewing. What is it, and what does it mean for Superman and Clark Kent? Tune in next time to find out. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman of the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast covering the adventures of Superman from 1970 to 1986. Join host Charlie Niemeyer at superbronze1970.libson.com. Our cast this time, we've got Bud Collier as Superman and Clark Kent, Julian Noah as Perry White in episodes 10, 12, and 14, and the Fire Chief in Episode 10, 
Arthur Vinton as Mike in Episode 10, Ned Weaver as various voices in Episode 10, and Bartley Pemberton in voices, or, excuse me, Episodes 11 through 15. Santos Ortega was Joseph Deneen in Episodes 11 through 15. Marion Shockley was the nurse in Episode 11, and June Anderson in Episodes 12, 14, and 15. Shockley and Bud Collier were married in 1952 and remained so until his death in 1969. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I I guess their work together here is where they met. I I don't think they had any... Um, Previous encounters? Uh, yeah, there you go. Previous encounters, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Frank Lovejoy was Captain Vincent Anderson in episodes 12 through 15. And Lovejoy has another comic book connection... Because he voiced the title character in the first 13 episodes of the Blue Beetle radio serial, which was based on the Dan Garrett version from Fox Comics. That was a very, very short-lived radio serial. Um, It ran May through September 1940 for like 48 episodes total. That is still really cool. I didn't even know Blue Beetle was cool enough to get a radio serial. Yeah. I I mean, Batman couldn't get one. Right. Um, I've heard I think I've heard those It's been a while But I remember enjoying them um, Not as much as the Superman ones But I didn't think it was that bad But it was Like I said It was pretty short lived 48 episodes Is still pretty good though Yeah Yeah it's um, Not enough for syndication But it's pretty good (laughs) Um, And I don't know Who did the voice of Lois In episode 10 It might have been Raleigh Bester Or it might have been Marion Shockley I don't. It kind of sounds more like Raleigh Bester to me, but I don't. It still sounded like Lois, but she only yeah. had like what three lines, so it's hard to tell. Yeah, just long enough to yell at Clark, and that's about it. As always. So our first episode was episode ten, and it was called "Fire in the Sterling Building." And the first note I had was that they kind of did a bait and switch on us with the cliffhanger. Maybe not really a bait and switch, but they kind of pulled one over on us because there was considerably more to the scene after episode 9 ended because when you heard that episode it kind of sounded like Clark was running out of the planet right then but they just carried on and Lois came in and they talked to him more before he finally left yeah I noticed that too it's like let me cover it okay go ahead and then on this one it's like let me cover it and then Lois comes in oh hey he wants to cover it and be a man again or something and yeah yeah it was a little I was like wait a minute this, this scene seems very similar but I don't remember it being this long <laughs> And he left with Mike. I don't remember if he left with Mike at the end of episode nine. That was kind of the impression I got that they were leaving right as that episode ended. Well, yeah, I didn't remember him leaving with Mike though. Oh, I remember him. Clark was heading out. Right. And then this time it was definitely him and Mike heading out. But I don't remember. I didn't re-listen to episode nine because I'm sorry. <laughs> I listened to it to to see if I was wrong about the other thing, but I didn't. Uh, I guess I guess I should do that more often. <laughs> Especially when it's been so long since we recorded, but yeah. Um, but speaking of Lois, she is just a total witch here in this episode. That's a good way to put it. Clark just saved her life and the Daily Planet, and now he's offering to help defenseless people in a burning building. And she's all like, "Ooh, the big hero! Let's get him a medal." Which is pretty interesting, considering last episode, well, last series of episodes, she was giving him all kinds of guff for abandoning people in a building. Right. Uh, even though there was really nothing he could do at that time. Right, yeah. So he, the poor guy can't win. I did like, though, that Perry 
pretty much told her to shut up, though. That, that was cool. Yeah. That was cool. Well, the first thing I noticed in, uh, when they're in the cab, they're talking about Lois and how Clark doesn't have a, ch- a shot with her because Lois is all goo-goo gaga about Superman. Right. The question I have there, and I know it's important stuff, but the thing I have is, well, one, Lois didn't meet Cl- Superman until last episode, sort of. And I haven't really met at she all, was Yeah, she wasn't really actually conscious for it. Right. She just kind of has heard. I think she's mentioned that she remembers a blue or red cape or something. But anyway, um, she does I – mean, she, so she's only sort of met him. But Mike, who we've never even heard of before, seems to have all this knowledge how she's all goo-goo-gaga over Superman and loves him. And mm-hmm. it, it's kind of – I mean – they made it sound like, even though they said a little, some time has passed, they made it sound like it, I believe it was the, that this is the next day after Clark saved the Daily Planet, or that later that evening or something. And so there's literally no time for anyone to think that Lois has the hots for Superman. Right. Yeah. It's what I got from Episode Nine was was that it was the next day. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's not even. I mean. It's they're they're trying to hint at the love triangle, obviously that's in the comics. Yes. But even it's not even really in the comics yet at this point. No, because Clark doesn't actually seem to love her. He's just playing with her. Right. So it's it's just all kind of weird, and I don't know. It's just a it's just a really weird scene. The way he talks to Clark doesn't make sense because even if you think about it, Clark's only been employed with the Daily Planet for. He's not, you know, he's not been employed at the Daily Planet for very long. Yeah, it so may be a week. Shouldn't be any any reason to think that he and Lois are an item. And You're right. It's just all very new to be introducing that kind of a, of a conversation from the background characters. And now that you mentioned that too, uh, Clark's been there for a while at this point, but. The first while that he was there, he wasn't even there because he was out west doing the train story. Right. Then he comes back, and whenever he's there, Lois is out interviewing the professor, basically. So it's not like you can get the idea that Clark has any feelings for Lois because he's literally, literally just barely met her. Right. And then, and then they're gone on the story, and they don't really – neither one of them really spend much time at the planet before the whole yellow mask almost destroys it. So <sighs> – I don't know. Mike shouldn't know either one of them at all. <laughs> right. And the, the fact he acts like they've both been there for a couple of years and Clark has been repeatedly trying to ask Lois on dates and standing there making goo-goo eyes at her and she's just ignoring it and all this stuff. It's like they haven't – this seems like to be the first time they've actually introduced that Clark would have any feelings towards Lois. But Clark hasn't actually had time to have feelings for Lois. Right. So, uh, Wow. And the the only way I can really explain it is that a lot like with the uh, the change in the origin is that they were just trying to get right into the normal setup of the yeah the show without having to go through all the characters because it was aimed at kids and yeah. kids aren't going to care yeah they're not so, going to notice it like we are right yeah thirty <laughs> something year old men <laughs> talking about a radio show from the forties <laughs> it's fun though. Oh, I'm not saying it's not yeah. fun. I'm just saying they probably were not expecting to have 
thirty some year old man talking right. about this show some in two thousand eleven. Yeah, right. seventy years later. Right. <laughs> talking about how they just messed up this whole thing, but that's all right. <laughs> I thought Julian Noah did a great job as the fire chief though, not to make a total I didn't even recognize him as the fire chief. Yeah. And that's a first because I usually haven't been noticed. Well, no, he I, I didn't notice him as the yellow mask either, but yeah, he's done a very good job on this one. Yeah. Unlike that first episode he was in where he had like one voice for six, six different characters. people. Yeah. yeah. It's like the Seth MacFarlane syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> on a powers note, we have Superman using his x-ray vision to see June hiding in the closet. He uses, he's used that before though. But he does seem to withstand the flames without any, any difficulty, which is something we haven't seen him do. Just which, keeping track. ironically, we still haven't because this is the radio, so we've heard him. But on right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, this kind of ties in with your next note, I think. But okay. we've seen a lot of people. A lot of people have seen Superman fly through the air. I mean, here the fire chief and the captain both seen him and swear to it, but Clark just dismisses it. And it's just, you know, standard stuff, but I love that Superman is finally flying, and we get the, you know, the look up in the skylines from the characters in the story. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed, too, that um, they, since he waited so long, though, we actually see a lot more Clark than we normally would. Uh-huh. Uh, even in the comics at the at this time, he would norm- he normally would have found some way to ditch Mike, change to Superman, and save the girl. But he's more secretive on the radio show. Right. So because Superman is still not known. Right. No one's supposed to know about him. So he he's waiting until he can find an opportunity to get over there, which kind of adds to the I guess drama of the episode because you're like, when is he going to change? When is he going to save her? The wall's about to fall. He better get his button gear. Yeah, he's got to find and, a way to get in there and do it without being seen. Exactly. Which, is, yeah. which was part of the cliffhanger from last time. How would he save the girl without being seen? Right. And the t- answer was he couldn't. He got in there without being seen, but he got seen leaving. Right. And I can totally picture an Alex, an Alex Ross painting of him flying out with those firefighters pointing up at him. <laughs> yeah, and it's, he's like uh, kind of not really shadowed, but... Um, you know, kind of hidden by the the smoke and the the yeah, a little bit, just enough that you can see that it's a guy, right, with like red cape and boots and blue suit, but you can't really make out any features. Hmm. That'd be really cool. That would be. I don't know why I see that as a painting. <laughs> anyway, um, I really didn't have anything else much about this particular episode, but I thought it was just a great, exciting episode. The dialogue and the narration really give you a sense of the urgency. Especially during the uh, the scene at the building with the fire and going into the building and all that, the sound effects are just fantastic. Yeah, I was I really enjoyed this one too. It was uh, well, like you said, it was exciting. I was well, like I just mentioned, you know, you had the wondering when he's going to change, when he's going to change, and I'm sitting there wondering, okay, he's done. He he's wasting time here. He needs to find a way to change. He's talking to people and he can't. They can't save the girl. The girl's still up there. They don't know where she is. Right. <laughs> He's got to, you know, he needs to change. So, yeah, I was I was pretty caught up in it, which is pretty good considering this is 70 years old. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it... And I've heard this before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It shows you just how well they stand up. I mean, I had a little problem with some of the later episodes in this storyline that, that we'll get to here in a little bit. Mm-hmm. But 
yeah, some of them just really still stand up even today. This, it's a very good intro to the story at any rate. Oh, yeah, definitely. But our next episode was episode 11, and it's called The Stabbing of June Anderson. And here we get our introduction to Pemberton and Deneen, and the dynamics between those two characters reminds me somewhat of the Wolf and Kino. I totally agree. Wolf and Kino and Yellow Mask and Michael after a little bit. Right. So they're kind of, I mean, Pemberton and Deneen are different villains than the Wolf or Yellow Mask, but they're still kind of going with the same uh, basic setup with a a main bad guy and kind of a a flunky. Yeah, although Deneen didn't talk near as much. No. He didn't have hardly anything that he was really doing. He was just there. Yeah. And Kino seemed to talk almost more than the wolf. Yeah. Um, just past the five-minute mark in, in the files we have, when Clark walks out onto the patio, Bud Collier does a mid-sentence voice transition to Superman that is very smooth. And if, yes. I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think that's the first time he's done the transition like that because previous times it's been you know, his Clark Kent voice or his Superman voice, but here he just slides from one to the other and I just love yeah. when he does that <sighs> she's right it is cold and what's a little thing like cold a superman I knew I'd find out something if I hung around here long enough two men in a car eh not much to go on but I have an hour or so to look yeah that was really cool Usually, you know, like you said it's usually he ends one sentence as Clark and then goes into Superman for the next sentence and he doesn't hear and I'm not that's why I'm not on a Superman radio show because I can't do it very well but nobody uh, can no, yeah I know I don't think anyone's been able to do it like Bud Collier could no and there's been actors that could do the two voices but to transition from one to the other mid-sentence yeah no <laughs> And this is, I mean, it's even better than the, this is a job for Superman type right. transition because there's actually a definite pause in there. But this one, he's like, I'm just going to go out and check on things with the, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I guess my note kind of fits in here then. Um, Superman actually tries going out and looking for two guys in a car, not knowing what Pemberton and Deneen look like <laughs> and not knowing what kind I of car they're driving. <laughs> He doesn't know what they look like, and he doesn't know what kind of car they're driving. All he knows is it's a car. <laughs> He's figured it's heading out of town. but Yeah. And we don't know. We assume, knowing what we know now, that it's this metropolis. But we don't know what city this is. But any city the size uh, that they're trying to get us to believe this city is, uh-huh. that's a lot of ground to cover, for one thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, he said, they say later he checked 500 cars. Yeah. And that's just like... Wow, <laughs> that's 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 like that's probably the most needle in a haystack approach that we've seen him try so far in any of the media. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. And not not a very bright move, was it? Not his best. And then at the end of it, he sees a, he spots a car with two guys in it that he tries to stop, and it turns out to be a police car. Right. Now I thought that was weird, but. I think it was episode six. He's he can see on the dark. Yes. So he should have been able to see that it was a police car. Right. Unless it was one of those undercover ones. That's what, what I was that, thinking. That would make sense, but they don't say it is, so I wasn't sure. Did they have undercover cars back in 1940? I would think so. Okay. Like for the detect plain clothes detectives and stuff. Right. I really didn't understand the point of that scene to begin with. It's but after I thought about it some more, it's the only real Superman scene 
in this episode, which is probably why they stuck it in. Yeah, they had to come because, up with something. Yeah, they have to have Superman do something in every episode. So, Otherwise, it's the Clark Kent show. Right, yeah. Uh, it's kind of weird, though. The last episode had a lot of action, and this episode is mostly exposition and character. But I thought both episodes were pretty interesting, which mm-hmm. I think owes a lot to the writing and Bud Collier mostly. But still, it, it just shows that they can do high action and, and exposition and it still be still keep your interest yeah this one has still, oh sorry so this one still had some of that thriller kind of aspect to it too because Superman's trying to find these guys and as he's heading out to look for a car heading out of town they've just turned around and are heading back into town mm-hmm. meaning that Clark, uh, Superman won't spot them yeah and then He's still out there when they show up at the hospital, and he shows up shortly after they've been there, and it was like, uh, like last time. Yeah, he had just missed them. Yeah, it was pretty. It was pretty cool. When Clark comes back to the hospital, though, I really like the uh, uh, conversation he had with the nurse and how Collier played Clark in that scene. It mm-hmm. just seemed very. Very relaxed and very natural because he's kind of he's kind of kidding around with the nurse a little bit, and I really like that until he starts to bribe the nurse, which <laughs> isn't very ethical, but it turned out to be a moot point anyway. Yeah, but that that's what they would have done back then, and any probably any reporter would have done the same thing. But Clark is supposed to be the upstanding, you know, mild mannered yeah, reporter but... fighting for truth. Oh, yeah, that's the other guy, but uh, you know. Still. Yeah, sometimes you just gotta I don't know. That's why I don't write Clark in the forties. I don't know. <laughs> um I did want to know what uh what the visiting hours of this place are though. They don't um, have visiting hours. You can just go uh, see the sick people anytime you want. They don't need yeah, to rest. Appara- yeah, apparently not. They make it sound like this we're probably at like late at night, like late late. Cause I mean they got the late news on the radio. Yes. Uh the district attorney has given up and headed home Clark's still hanging around so I'm thinking we're talking 10, 11 o'clock at night probably dark, so yeah very dark and of course that's 500 cars is still a lot of traffic at 11 o'clock at night but still 11 o'clock at night and they just and I know family can be not allowed to see well they have to be what immediate family Uh, usually if it well it depends on what the what the condition of the person is and, and right. hospital rules. But yeah, if, if someone's in critical, it's usually immediate family only. And I'm sure it also depends on the decade, but um, yeah, it's usually immediate family only. Uh, so an uncle and cousin probably wouldn't be allowed anyway. So this hospital is a little strange. Unless they, here's my, you know, we can no prize the answer and say that they lied and said that they were her only family. That's possible. But An uncle and cousin were all the family she has left. Because Please, no, ma'am. It's been a whole 12 hours, and, and no one has showed up to see this girl. We drove all the way from Canyon City, <laughs> and we had to – it took forever, but we finally got here. Um, but I – when Clark calls back to the planet, I absolutely love the guy at the rewrite desk. Oh, yeah. He seemed like a really fun character, and I want to see more of this guy. Unfortunately, I don't think we ever do. But um, he just seems like a really fun character. And I don't know who did the voice. I think it might have been Julian Noah, but I don't want to say that for sure. But he I was going to say it didn't sound like him, but I didn't recognize him as the fire chief either, so I don't know. Right. Uh, the character just seems like one of these uh, constantly grumpy characters, but uh, 
the kind of guy that's gr- always grumpy but good natured about it. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just seems like a really fun character. <laughs> the last comment I had about this particular episode was that they must have blown their sound effects budget last episode because the sum total of the effects used for the hotel or the excuse me the hospital ambiance was either Raleigh Bester or Marion Shockley pretending to be a nurse and paging various doctors. That's not true. They had the ding ding. <laughs> but yes, other than that, basically, other than that little scene where Superman stopped the car, that pretty much was it. Yeah. And... So their their sound effects guys must have been hired out from the day before and just <laughs> took the day off. It's like it's like it's one of those shows where like they have a certain amount of money to go for the six episodes, so they use too much money on the first one. So the right. second one's that's why it's all characterization and quiet because they had all their action take place in the first one. Right. I uh, love it. Totally agree with you. Um, and our next episode was episode twelve, the North Star Mining Company. And I think Pemberton and Deneen might be the most inept murderers ever. <laughs> they, they try to kill this girl by burning down a building and fail. Then they try to stab her and fail again. Yeah, and it's an interesting way to start the story too. Well, it turns out the stabbing was was you know nothing. <laughs> the episode ends and like we don't know how she is, and then they just come in and say, well, it turns out the yeah. stabbing was you know not really a point to worry about. And she's fine now, so we can just keep going. Right. Uh, we get June's story as a flashback, and this is the first flashback in the radio program. And even the comics and newspapers haven't used the technique much at all to this point, mm-hmm. which I really only make note of because it's uh, a storytelling construct, and I, I kind of like watching how the the different uh, authors tell the stories as they go on. Mm-hmm. But, and I like the technique they used for it, too. Her voice fades out as they go to the flashback. Yeah, that's and, that's really the only indication that they're going into a flashback is that her mm-hmm. voice kind of fades out and then back in. Uh, but it's it's still clear that they're doing – or if you're paying attention, it's clear what they're doing. Yeah. So uh, usually shows would use some sort of music cue or something. Um, have we mentioned that there's no music or scoring of any kind in this show at this point? Uh, I want to say we did, but I don't remember. Well, there, yeah, there, yeah, there's, there's nothing at this point. Right. There's not even uh, theme music at the beginning yet. Mm. Uh, eventually they'll bring in like an organ sting, but – Right now, it's just the the narrator and the the sound effect of the Superman flying through the air. And when you've got good writing and good sound effects and good acting, you don't need a sound effect. Exactly. You don't need music. Right. Yes. Or because you really don't notice it. Um, let's see. I'll. Uh, well, no, you're about to get to it, but I guess this is going to cover it too. Uh, they have uh, Superman checks out the car, mm-hmm. which somehow an orderly found out that they drove, <laughs> and. That it's still in the parking lot, and I don't know why they would have told the nurse that, but that's not the point. Um, it is basically one again. They have to come up with something for Superman to do because they're getting almost the way all the way through the episode, and Superman hasn't done anything. Right. Yeah. So he has to change, fly to the parking lot, and <laughs> what appears to be broad daylight, hoping not to be seen after worrying about it so much two episodes earlier. Goes in, finds nothing. But two guns and just – I guess he squishes them. doesn't really say. They just like, I better take care of these and then there. Yeah. I like but, that he uh, destroyed the guns though. That was yeah, that's, that's pretty touch. cool. And then I guess he just puts them back and closes it up and then someone spots him and he takes off. And that's it for Superman the whole episode. Right. So, yeah. I thought that was 
it was kind of weird and kind of pointless, but like like you had said with the last episode, you got to have Superman in there somewhere. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a Clark Kent show or Lois and Clark. And uh, let's see. And then the other note I have, we get Pemberton go to going to the Daily Planet as Mister or Doctor Ambrose, and Perry comes up and basically brings Clark or Clark brings him or they're bringing each other up to date on everything we've learned so far. Right. For those that who came I, in late. Exactly. Now that I could understand. But then Perry starts going into stuff that they're not supposed to print. Now, if it was just Clark there or Clark and Lois or Clark and another reporter, I could understand it. But with a quote unquote civilian standing there, I wouldn't think he'd be so what's the word I'm looking flip? Not flip. Uh, I wouldn't think he'd be so open about the information about he's the captain of the Madison and the Madison's about to hit Charleston and the DA's going to get the papers when he lands and all that stuff. Yeah, it does seem a little questionable, doesn't it? Right, but if he didn't do it, then Pemberton wouldn't have the information he was looking for and it would kind of bring it into the story right there. Right, yeah. So it kind of – it makes sense that they did it. It just doesn't make sense that they did it that it makes sense why they had it happen but it doesn't make sense that it happened right it's, it's kind of one of those things that we just have to get used to with the stories from 1940 you know yeah so but yeah you're, you're absolutely right exactly our next episode is episode 13 aboard the steamship madison the scene at the beginning where pemberton is telling the pilot of their boat to wait for a quick getaway made me realize that this is basically like a cliche bank heist scene but on water yeah because <laughs> their plan is to go on hold up the boat and then leave hey Shayla <laughs> wait here he's got also Pemberton's got a kind of weird accent that I can't do but a lot of the bad guys seem to have it where they talk really like they're trying not to move their mouth too much so it's like Shayla wait on the water right. we'll be back really fast and <laughs> now I don't know about you but if I was the sailor I don't. I really don't care how much money I was being paid to take them out to the boat. The minute that I noticed that the thing was on fire, I'd probably be hightailing it out of there. Yes. Whether the Pemberton and Danine were on the boat or not. <laughs> yes. Granted, I guess no one except the people on board knew about the munitions, so maybe that's why he hung around. But anyway, I like how we finally have someone showing some sense because Captain Andrews. Anderson. Anderson is what I meant to say. Captain <laughs> Anderson doesn't immediately give the papers over to Pemberton and Deneen without some kind of proof. Yes. And this is the first time that someone in this whole show besides Clark has used their head. Thankfully. And it's about flipping time. But um, it's – yeah, because yeah, as soon as they had that, I was, I was expecting, oh, he's going to – since they know the name June Anderson, they're just going to be like, oh, OK. Well, then here you go. Right. And he do, he doesn't. And it's like – Finally, <laughs> someone's listening and paying attention, <laughs> and then they hit him over the head, and it doesn't matter anyway. Right. Yeah, Amber, uh, Ambrose Anderson seems like a really different character than we've seen before. Because I mean, not to jump too far ahead, but he in episode fifteen he even catches the the bad guys at the uh -huh. end while Superman is saving June. So well, he has Blue Beetle, so he's got to. Well, there you go. Got to be smarter if you're going to be the hero of the show. <laughs> I, I want to complain about the convenient plot points in this episode that they just can't kill the captain and, and that they're going to blow up the boat rather than just steal the papers and leave, which would be a lot more sensible. But yeah. both are perfectly logical within the context of the story. So 
Yeah, because killing him would make too much noise. Although, they, there's other ways they could kill him without shooting him. But if they, even if they did that, they'd still have to blow up the boat. Right. Because they couldn't get access, and apparently neither one of them can, take, can open a safe. So And they couldn't force the captain to do it because he was willing to die, I guess. So without being able to get into the safe, it made sense to blow it up. But, like you said, why didn't they kill the captain? Right. But if they killed him, then he couldn't have told Superman, there's munitions in the safe. Before there's conveniently papers. fainting. Yeah. As so many characters do when Superman shows up. Exactly, like like June, just a couple episodes earlier. It's like sister, like brother. <laughs> the the only other note I had for this episode was that apparently one of the crewmen aboard the Madison is a Mister Olson. So I wondered I, if he had a son named Jimmy. I noticed that too, and I was like, maybe I'm just hearing that wrong. But he's like, have Olson take him down to the whatever, and I'm like, ha, Olson, awesome. <laughs> So then moving on to episode 14, which is the plane to Canyon City. We have a really lame opening. Yes. Very frustrated with that. We had a nice cliffhanger at the end of episode 13 with the ship exploding and not knowing if Captain Anderson and the crew made it. And then this episode opens a good deal of time later when not only has Anderson made it to land, but up the coast to the city and to the offices of the Daily Planet, and they don't even explain it. Yeah, that's the okay. That's two lame openings in a row. Yes, and this one also has the um, ability to end in a lame way because, like I said, this on this episode is probably the worst cliffhanger we've had so far. Um, because <laughs> the, the least realistic, I guess. Yeah, is the flying guy gonna f- die because he fell? Oh no! But yeah, I don't think the kids had to worry too much. Although they might have, some of them might have fallen for it. But I don't think the kids had to worry too much. But that was a little bit annoying because it's like we have all this stuff built up at the end, and it's like, well, everyone's at the Daily Planet, right? It's like, yay. <laughs> they just, uh, yeah, it's just frustrating because they don't even explain it. You know, I mean, obviously they did, they weren't hurt in the explosion, but why build up that big cliffhanger if you're just gonna scuttle it next episode? Exactly. So, <laughs> but you got to have some way to have him come back, though. Yeah. But then I question as they're talking. I mean, they're actually going to buy Clark's story that his friend just happened to find a package that was in a safe in a ship that exploded and just happened to, for absolutely no reason whatsoever, send it to Clark. Yeah, that was pretty cool too. <sighs> but you know, it, the the kids. They don't care. Kids today are smarter than that. Today? Not really. But <laughs> but it's like, hey, you know, it makes sense. I mean, Clark couldn't have gotten him as Superman, so the, the Coast Guard friend sent him to him. Yeah. Although in real life, I would think that the Coast Guard finding the papers uh, would probably give him to his commanding officer, who probably would have known something about the fact that the DA was coming for these papers or something. Uh, so, yeah. But this this episode does have one redeeming quality, and that is the Filipino houseboy scene. <laughs> Which isn't racist at all. Oh, no, 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 no. It just feels like it was lifted right from the comics at this point. Um, uh-huh. This isn't – this is not at all like I prefer Superman to be portrayed, but it's a classic scene for this this era of the Superman in the Golden Age, you know, from, from breaking into the house to the houseboy shooting at him to Superman threatening to uh, – 
bouncing off the sidewalk when he's done absolutely nothing wrong, but basically be in the wrong place at the wrong time. <laughs> and then he flies away laughing at it. Yeah, that was pretty so. cool. And I think my favorite part of that scene is when he, after he, the houseboy says, you're not come in, and then shuts the door on him. So he changes to Superman and hits up the roof and he goes, and there's the skylight. Then you hear, right. and he goes, or rather, there was the skylight. <laughs> that was probably my favorite part. I like, I actually chuckled at that one. Because <laughs> he just, it's just a relaxed Superman going, well, there it was. <laughs> yeah. Is this uh, Filipino houseboy the first person to have a real interaction with both Clark and Superman pretty much consecutively? I think it right, is, isn't it? One right after the other. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I we've think had, so. We've had other characters interact with Superman, but they've always – it's just been brief and then they faint or pass out or – Yeah. Uh, usually they – like – even Wolf and Kino met Clark and then left, and then eventually he changed to Superman and met them later. Right. But not immediate like this one. Right. So this poor Filipino houseboy, Sita, Sita. had a really bad day. Because yeah. <laughs> first Sita. he's got the reporter, and then he's got the guy in tights <laughs> throwing him around, threatening him, and threatening to basically turn him into a basketball if he doesn't, nope. if he says anything about him. That's pretty cool. They didn't say at the end of the uh, story, but they probably sent him to the mental hospital with the train conductor from a few episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. Because there was – actually, no, they probably didn't even believe him because he's got an accent. Or deported him back to the Philippines. Yeah. there you go. <laughs> he's back in the Philippines. Um, <laughs> don't like that kind, of, that kind of talk in our states. You go back home. But um, Collier uses his mid-sentence transition again in this scene. Where he says something about, um, if you don't want Clark Kent, Clark Kent around, let's see how you feel about Superman. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, no actor has ever done that like Collier does, did. Not even Christopher Reeve. And he's, he probably, right. out of everyone I've heard since then, probably had the best Clark and Superman differentiation on the voice of anyone else. Because he seemed to be the only other one that actually worked on it. It seems like just about any other cartoon, or even cartoon, movie, show, whatever, uses the same um, voice both ways. Tim Daly did a little bit. Eh, a not, little. Not quite as much as Bud Collier. It was pretty subtle, but yeah. Reeve, but yeah. It wasn't as drastic. Let's put it that way. Right. No, no. Did it seem, speaking of voices, though, did it seem like the narrator was speaking in a more, did it seem like he was more subdued this time? He seemed a little tired. Yeah. Like he was getting bored or something. I don't know what was going on there. (laughs) He just seemed like he was speaking in more hushed tones instead of the loud, bombastic narrator that we've had. Yeah, usually it's like... uh, 13 episodes prior. Last time, Clark Kent almost blew up. What will happen this time? Listen. And this time is, well, what happened was the captain made his way to Charleston and they sent he went up to the city and now is at the Daily Planet offices and now he's there with his sister and Clark and Perry White and they're talking about stuff listen yeah <laughs> it's like wow he needs some coffee i i wonder if they did a lot of these like if they would come in one day and do three or four episodes since they were all transcribed yeah that would make sense i could see them doing that Instead of doing one at a time. Right. Especially since they're only 15 minutes. I mean, I can't imagine it took them more than, you know, um, an afternoon to record an episode. 
right. these being only 15 minutes long. And depending on how they did it, even if they if, if they were kind of recording these live and putting them onto tape as they were recording it, I mean, literally that would be 15 minutes. I don't know when they started doing the full-on live broadcast as they recorded stuff, but... That's they, down the road a few years, yeah. Yeah, but you've, uh, I think you were saying earlier when we were talking about the sound effects that most of those were doing, being happening live on the fly, so I'm not even sure that they even had to do that long. They probably could have done the episodes in 15 minutes to half an hour, depending could on... Could be, yeah. Because uh, this is the early days of radio still, so they probably were still figuring out about how they could edit. <laughs> right. They didn't have computers back then. They didn't exactly. have GarageBand and Audacity to do their editing in. Oh, Audacity is so nice. <laughs> but then we come to the end of the episode, which we've already talked about a little bit. But I'm like, really? Clark's climbing out on the wing of an airplane? Well, wouldn't you? And then I wonder what Lois would say about that. And she'd, she'd probably say that Clark made the airplane fly up there so that it would freeze up on purpose. And he could You wanted to go to Idaho in January on purpose. Yeah. Just so you could do that, Mr. High Flute and Reporter. <laughs> Just so you could climb out on the airplane wing. <laughs> oh, you're an idiot to go out there. I don't know what you were thinking. I was trying to save the plane, Lois. Well, whatever. That was just – it was just a pointless stunt. You right. died and you almost fell off anyway. <sighs> I did like, though, um, that the that Pemberton was using the name John Jones because apparently that means he's the Martian Manhunter. <laughs> right. About 30 years before – or about 20-some – no, what is this, 40 still? 41? This is 40. So about 15 years before he yeah. actually showed up. Right. So he's the Martian Manhunter, and he's trying to also be J. Jonah Jameson. Yes, John J. Jones. Yes. Well, it's like when it, the J. Jones part, I was like – well, I even said it in the review – in the thing. I, want, I started saying J. Jonah Jameson. So, yeah. I have a friend that um... – Yay! Yay! I have friends. Yay! <laughs> uh, no, Congratulations. He 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 likes comic books, of course, and he's you know into Spider Man and Superman, and but he's into Spider Man more, and he's well, not everyone's perfect. Just well, yeah, yeah, but I I don't hold it against him, but yeah. just subconsciously, he's always calling the Daily Planet the Daily Bugle. Oh yeah, that makes sense. And I've done the same thing the other way around. He, he just always, whenever I usually talk to him on email, and uh, he he ends up typing, you know, bugle instead of planet. So I always talk about that. But yeah, I do the um, I do the same thing with the other way around. Peter Parker's always working right. at the Daily Bugle, or yeah. well, he is actually. But um, I'm always saying the Daily Planet. Yeah. Did you have anything else about this particular episode, or are we ready to go on to the next? Uh, this one, not really, other than the just it was that was a pointless cliffhanger. Yeah, because and I just can't reiterate that enough. That was well, even when, it, the first time I heard it, I was like, seriously. Is the <laughs> cliffhanger can't... more about though? How will Clark cover this up, or will Clark I, be okay? Well, the way they said it, it was. Um, uh, has Clark fallen to the mountain below or okay. something like that? I don't – I'd have to listen to it one more time, but I don't remember them even mentioning how – and if he survived, how will Clark cover this up without letting them know he's Superman? Right. So, High over the wildest and cruelest peaks of the continental divide, while snow whirls about the wings and ice holds the plane in its deadly grip. And what of Clark Kent? What has happened? Did he lose his grip when the wing snapped and go plunging downward through the dark? 
Tune in with us next time and follow the exciting transcription, Superman. Yeah, but it was kind of, I mean, yeah, that would be something that they should have mentioned instead of whether or not he died. Because, <laughs> although they actually come up with a pretty good explanation, but yeah, I, I thought that was kind of, it was just lame because he, we've seen him fly. He's been flying all the last five episodes so far. Right. So, <laughs> well, 14 episodes, 13 episodes. Oh, yeah, good point. Yes. So, yeah. It should be kind of obvious that he can fly and not die. But like like we were saying, it like the comic books of these days, every episode could be someone's first. So if you don't know he flies, right? then that it kind of got you there too. Or how strong he was because he, exactly. he flew earlier in the episode. Well, yeah. Um, oh, he leaped up onto a route. Oh, no, he flew back to the Daily Planet, didn't he? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, then I don't know what I'm talking about. But at least he didn't jump out of a uh, spaceship and fly back to or go back to Earth. Yeah. So, thank God. <laughs> so our final episode was episode fifteen, and it's called "Left to Die" or "Left to Be Killed." When uh, <laughs> when Superman saved the plane, I really, really wanted a scene like in uh, when Superman saves Air Force One and Superman the movie. <laughs> fly! Don't look. Just. Right fly we've got something i'm not saying what it is just trust me yeah <laughs> that would have been cool do you know but, who did the voice of the air traffic controller in that scene uh the air traffic controller uh-huh. sounds to me like christopher reeve it was christopher reeve when he hear the a nine or nine yeah it totally sounds like i'm like that's weird <laughs> and then the um I didn't realize that they had to voice over the guy that's flying the plane the, that said, just said the line I just quoted, uh, that that guy, apparently, I heard it in the commentary for Superman the movie, he he had a very thick British accent, I think. Oh, really? Huh. And they kind of, I don't know if they got him last minute or what, but they, he, they brought him in and he said that he could cover his accent and make it American. And apparently he couldn't. <laughs> The guy apparently the guy tried, but he couldn't hide the British accent. So he acted it out, and then they brought someone else in to dub the line over it. Huh. I I have seen those commentaries, but it's been many years. I should rewatch them sometime soon to pull out little nuggets like that. But yeah, that one. I don't know why that one sticks with me. Uh, I think it's just because it sounds kind of dubbed over because everyone else sounds like they're kind of in the plane, and his is right. Totally sounds recorded over, but I yeah. thought. It was just quiet. But, yeah, uh, I think it was Donner that said that he couldn't he couldn't do it, so they had to have someone record it for him. <laughs> but, yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, the I've only had really only two other comments for this episode. Uh, first of all, that they were pretty stupid to fall for the, the fake sheriff ruse since they, they landed in, the, in that spot by happenstance. And mm-hmm. even if they happened to land close to where they would need to be, it's pretty unlikely that the, that the sheriff would just meet them out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So. And um, I, I thought it was kind of interesting. Granted, we maybe we missed something, but when Pembroke – Pembroke. I keep saying Pembroke. Pemberton. <laughs> when Pemberton told Bailey to go out and find Kent and all that stuff. First, all he says is that, you know, just tell him that the editor back east needs him on the phone or something. So he's okay. And then he leaves. 
But when he gets there, he says White. So at some point, he learned Perry White's name. Yes. And then I'm wondering how he – well, I guess he could have – it seemed like they were – the others were already in town. So you would think they'd be getting like a rental car or something to head to the mine. Meanwhile, the Bailey guy had to leave the mine, get to town, and then get around behind them to make it look like he was – I don't know. Some of the thinking with that is kind of hurts my head. Yeah. Because he would have had to go to the he, town, wait for them to leave, come up behind them to make it look like uh, you know, he was the sheriff or whatever. Plus, he would have to be an undercover sheriff because he wouldn't be in a police car. Unless he stole one. Well, he could have stolen a police car too. I don't yeah. know. Or maybe he, he just likes to have decals. Yeah, some of the as as much as I enjoy these episodes and, and as good as I think they are, sometimes you just can't think too much about them because they will yeah. give you a headache. Yeah, yeah, I'm the same way. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> folks, when you listen to us talk about these, please don't think that we hate these shows. Oh yeah, they're they're awesome shows. These are yeah. fun, entertaining shows. But part of this is to <laughs> not really make fun of them, but kind of point out stuff that yeah. we we notice when we're doing this. So. It's just one of those things that it's like, eh. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's, it's, I really enjoyed the episodes. It's kind of a, a a fine line when you look at Golden Age stories, or, or really well, Silver Age too, and even Bronze Age to a degree. You know, you could spend all day pointing out the the weird plot inconsistencies and and the unnatural or unrealistic things that happen in the story. But oh yeah, there's some of that stuff you large... just have to accept, but some of it is. You know, yeah, there's large leaps in logic yeah. and all kinds of stuff happen. But, you know, and and even today they have that. So, oh, yeah. And you can, I mean, I, there is never going to be anything written, whether it's a, a movie, a TV show, a radio show, a commercial, a comic book, uh, I don't know, anything that is going to be 100% perfect. Right. It's, it's it's completely impossible. There's always going to be something weird or something that someone notices or some plot hole. So, yeah, and you may not notice it at first, but after a few viewings or listenings or watchings or readings, you're going to see it. Right. And I guess I should point out books, too, because all that stuff I said was written. I th- forgot books. <laughs> of course. <laughs> anyway. The, the last note I had was that if the mine is good after all, doesn't that mean that Pemberton and Deneen are innocent? Yeah, I was wondering the same thing. Except for the you know multiple counts of attempted murder and assault. Yeah, it's like you know if if they had just kind of well waited. Then, yeah, <laughs> or you know if they had tried blowing it up before <laughs> and just got away with the money, then they would find that the mine was fine and be okay. Right. But, no, they had to kill June first, and if they hadn't done that. Granted, we wouldn't have had this whole story, but if they hadn't tried to kill her, then they never would have found out about the mine. Right. But yeah, that, I was thinking the same thing. I think that's so, irony. Is that irony? I think it is. I think so. It's it's not quite Stan Lee level, but yes, because oh, no. basically a few things are are, are Stan Lee level. Yeah, good point. But uh, but yeah, I totally agree. This is <laughs> it's like so. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. So basically, what you're telling me is this mine that wasn't working that we almost ki- that we tried to kill people about. Is a good mine, and now we can't we can't get anything for it. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last the last twenty minutes of the episode are just Pemberton and 
in the corner muttering profanity over and over. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's the beep, 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 beep. Because, <laughs> you know, a radio show in the 40s was like, they weren't allowed to cuss. Yeah. Not that they are now. I don't know that they have radio shows these days where they're allowed to cuss, but maybe on HBO. There's no, there's no, I don't think there's any audio drama on the radio unless it's pre-recorded stuff. I mean, there there, yeah. there are still audio dramas out there, but yeah, um, like the UK does Doctor Who stuff all the time. Right. Yeah. That's the only way you can do it with the uh, old older actors coming back. Yeah. But this isn't the Throwing Adventures of Who. This Who? is the Throwing yeah, exactly. <laughs> So did you have any overall comments on this episode? Um, overall comments? On the, uh, on the six episodes? Well, first, uh, the actress for June mm-hmm. just seemed really overdramatic again. Yes. I don't know. It's like – I don't know what it is. It seems like all the guys, all the male actors are subdued and kind of keep their cool most of the time. And I'm not, I'm not saying they're better actors, but they just kind of fit in with the story a little bit better just because they stay calm and cool – Basically, unless it actually calls for them to be crazy, oh well, and or they have wait, an accent. Wait, wait till the next storyline. Yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but so but, yeah. far, so far, yeah. And then uh, even Lois was overacting a lot last time too. Uh, they, the, for some reason, we've had two. Fe- well, even the Miss, uh, what's her name, in the first storyline with the at the Daily Planet, they just. I don't know if it was just the way they were written at the time or the viewpoint of women at the time. I think it's or, yeah, I think but, it's both the way they're written and the way But it's like they're always help, yeah. they always sound like they're just about to cry. Yeah. Uh or they're always just about to scream or have some kind of heart attack or something very dramatic is happening and they can't just Now now Lois in the first episode of this, even though she was being a witch and snarky, mm-hmm. she actually sounded like a normal person just sitting there going, oh, okay, so he just wants to be Mr. Hero again. But it sounded like a normal-ish type of person thing. Right. Might not have The words might not have been nice, but she acted it like a normal person. But Miss Anderson, the whole time, she's just been like, don't you understand? Actually, what, what I equate it to is um, Dorothy from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> okay. A lot of times, she, especially when she's first meeting the, like, the witch – or the here or the munchkins or when she's first meeting anybody and she's scared of them at first and she's like oh i don't know what i'm doing we're not in kansas anymore right i don't know that it, it that's kind of the overacting i'm talking about yes and every female so far other than that one little bit of lois has been doing that in this show right and like uh, like i said it's probably just the way they were written this is the 40s this is before all the women's lib stuff we haven't even hit world war ii yet so we haven't even had the whole um roses the river thank you and all that stuff going on yet right so it's more than likely just the times but at, at, at times and even if i keep that in mind at times it does get a little annoying <laughs> it's, it's just just very overwrought I'd be interested in keeping an eye on this and seeing what happens as we get to uh, the World War II stuff, or even when um, we're past it. No. Okay. I'm, I'm, I misplaced her name now. John Anderson. Yeah. 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 When she comes in to take over the role to see okay. if it continues, because I, I, I really don't think it's the actresses to this point. I mean, granted. Marion Shockley and Raleigh Bester may not be Oscar Oscar worthy actresses, but 
you know, it's yeah. But the fact that they're playing it exactly the same way seems right. to tell me that it's not them so much as either the way they're being directed or the way it's being written. Right. And even Agnes Moorhead in the first episode as Lara was that way. Yes. She is a good actress, so. Yes. And even and that was even before it got to the overly dramatic parts. So, right. yeah. Um, at times, Marion Shockley's voice in these episodes reminded me of Rocky the Flying Squirrel as well. <laughs> Just this very high-pitched. <laughs> oh, that's a good point, yes. <laughs> hey, rookie. But on a, on an on a, uh, actor's note, I'm really liking Julian Noah's Perry White. Yes. I've never paid just a whole lot of attention from a critical standpoint before. He's not yet the, the classic blustery Perry that we'll get down the road, but I really like his portrayal of the character. I think he's the most believable character on the show. Yeah. Not, not that I necessarily want, you know, quote unquote realism in my comic book stories, but the characters still need to feel authentic. And, and you need that realism to kind of ground the fantastic stuff. Right. When you've got a guy flying through the air and shooting laser beams from his eyes, so yeah, yeah. Well, not yet, but yeah. Well, uh, X-rays. He's shooting X-rays, so you right. can use that. But yeah, I completely. And yeah, he does a really good job. And this is it's it's just the Perry White I'm used to. Right. I like it. He's not quite that blustery, Great Caesar's ghost, you know. No, he's not overly yet. blustery, but he's right. a take no nonsense right. editor. Right. And he doesn't. He doesn't want to. Oh, like a, yeah. He doesn't take nonsense. He won't take no for an answer. He expects what he wants. And right. He he seems like a good, fair boss, as far as being an editor for Daily Planet. Right. Now, other than that, I just thought this was a really cool episode. The um, or the whole the whole story was pretty cool. It, other than a couple of those openings and cliffhangers, they they did a good job of keeping you in suspense for most of the story. Right. And they were little chapters, but they flowed. Per- I thought they flowed pretty well as one continuous story. And I liked how the mystery kept building about the girl up until we found out who she was. And then it became about finding the papers. And then it became, became about finding the bad guys. Although I would think that the police would have helped them some. But we didn't want the police in on it because otherwise that wouldn't be a good story. Right. But other than that, yeah. I think the only thing that got me was the fact that we ha- we get to the end and we don't get any setup for the next episode. You're right. Where every uh, so far we've been getting at least at like, a little nibble. Yeah. Yeah. We got. I mean, we got at the end of the very at the end of the very first set of stories. We got the yellow mask making his threat. At the end of the yellow mask story, we had the fire at the Sterling Building, which led out to all this. This time, we have no clue what's going to happen next time. Just that something is going to happen, which makes me wonder if maybe we've hit the end of the episodes that they had pre-set up, and then they had to. They were hard at work trying to come up with new stuff because they'd been Could be. the show had been picked up, so they had to <laughs> get some be. stuff worked on. Yeah. Um, this story arc had a lot of variety to it. You you, you were saying earlier. Um, it, it just seems like each episode brought something a little different because the first episode had the building fire and a lot of action, and then the second and third episodes were mostly set up in progression, and then the fourth episode was out at sea, and the fifth episode was up in the air. And the, the final episode was uh, back on the ground, kind of in the mine, and, and Superman saving the day, of course. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like a very fast-paced and fun story. With the last uh, set of episodes, we complained that it felt a bit padded, but this one really didn't. 
No. And, and I really enjoyed it. And I like that we got a bit of a different villain since the wolf and yellow mask were kind of similar. I mean, yeah, the, the setup between Pemberton and Deneen was kind of the same dynamic, but here we've got corrupt businessmen rather than supervillains, which the wolf and yellow mask more were. You know, they, they didn't have the earthquake machines or the sonic disruptor, whatever it was called. <laughs> the atomic beam machine, that's what there it was. There you go, there you go, yes. But did it seem that Superman was a lot more visible in this story? Well, yeah, they the the, the houseboy got to see him. Yeah. And then he was spotted at the end of the fire, so this almost seems to be like his coming out. Yeah. I mean, he didn't really have a coming out moment, like saving the helicopter on the roof of the Daily Planet, but it, I don't know. We'll see as we go forward, but I, I just could have sworn that the does Superman exist plot point lasted a lot longer in these episodes, but maybe well, I'm wrong. The way he kind of brushed it off, it could come back. I mean, yeah. you've, all you've got is those two guys saying stuff, that saying that they saw him. Back then, they would have needed more proof than just two people. And that houseboy wasn't going to speak up. Right. And as <laughs> no, well, no, no. Not when no. Superman threatens to bounce him off the sidewalk. No. No, no, no. So, yeah, I, I, I think even though he's been spotted, I still think it's enough that it's still going to continue with the whole – it's just I th- I think if anything it's probably just going to add to the rumors of a Superman could be which we've already had at this point right F- rumors because he has been he actually has been kind of spotted uh, now that I think about it because um, Wolf and Kino saw met him right um, and he was spotted even though the train conductor's in a mental hospital he was spotted clearing off the train tracks true. And so I think it's just going to add to the mystery and the rumors of this mysterious Superman that no one believes exists. Right. Okay. Which actually is kind of a cool way to take it, even though it's Superman and we're not used to that. I think that's a pretty cool way to go with it. The Superman story in Action Comics number 11 dealt with a couple of guys that were selling stock in a phony oil well that turned out to be real. And there was a storyline in the dailies from May 1939 that featured a character called Dr. Ambrose, which was the character that Pemberton – or excuse me, the name that Pemberton used when he went to the Daily Planet. So they're not, they're not outright swiping from comics, but I can't help but wonder if they're not at the very least drawing a little more than just inspiration from them. Because you know, in the first storyline, we had a group trying to upset the rail lines, just like in the comics – Mm-hmm. And then we had a guy with a, um, a machine capable of destroying buildings and it being stolen by a villain who disguised himself as a scientist, just mm-hmm. like in the comics. And now this one picks up elements similar to those we've seen. So uh, It seems like they're doing stories inspired by right. the comics. They're not doing full-on adaptations. Right. This, but... uh, well, this one is probably the least similar than the other two, mm-hmm. but... I mean, it still could be all big coincidence, but I find that interesting. That is pretty cool. And I want to note that Metropolis has still not been named in the radio serial. Uh, Despite stories taking place all over the U.S., we still don't know what the city that Superman calls home, other than it's located in in the northeast part of the country, kind of vaguely in the vicinity of New York. So I... I'm and they haven't just, had much good weather lately. It's been a lot of fog and rain. Yes. And ice and cold. Yes. I think the the uh, weather in Metropolis has been fine. It's just he's been going all over the country, so. Well, yeah. Well, no, it was, 
well, it was really foggy in the first story. Okay. And then, oh yeah, okay. And it was really cold at the hospital, but the, yeah, the ice was over Idaho, so never mind. Right. Apparently weather was just rough to deal with back in 1940. <laughs> I think this is my favorite complete storyline so far, though, even though we've only had three. Mm-hmm. I'll go with that. Uh, you know, I really like the, the debut episode the groove. because, as we talked about for like an hour in the first episode there, but uh, I think as the storyline as a whole, I think this one is better than the very first storyline. Yeah, it's got more of a cohesiveness than the others have so yeah. far. Yeah. They're definitely starting to get their groove. Right. Well, if you want to hear this episode, all six, or I'm sorry, this storyline, all six episodes were included in the Radio Spirits uh, Smithsonian box set that was released on CD and cassette in the mid-90s. And the story was adapted in text form with spot illustrations in the February 1941 cover date issue of Radio and Television Mirror. This adaptation was actually reprinted, reprinted in the booklet that came with the Radio Spirits box set. It's a very much abbreviated form of the story. You pretty much only get episodes 12 and 13. It gives us a one-sentence summary of how Superman saved the girl from the, the burning building... Then it goes right into the recap of how she was, how she caught Pemberton and Deneen in their swindle. And then we get a scene aboard the Madison, and it wraps up after Superman saves Captain Anderson and gets the package of papers, saying that that will be enough evidence to put away Pemberton and Deneen. So they, they pretty much skip the whole last half wow. of the storyline. It's kind of like, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they worked some kind of deal to get these adaptations into that magazine. Well, yeah, but still, it just, the, uh, it just, you might, audience. I mean, why only do part of the show, part of this, I would think they would do, go for the full story instead of just, like, part of it. And it could be the magazine limited in them to how much space could they be. could have, too. Well, I hope they got the three episodes from the last story. That would have <laughs> been cool. They could have had a whole story right there. I don't think that one was ad- was adapted. Of course not. <laughs> I had to look back at my... Listen back to the episode to see what I mentioned. Well, I guess if you if you finish it with the, this is all the evidence we'll need. I guess they can just assume that they got Pemberton and Deneen, so it's not right. a huge deal. I in, in some ways, I guess the whole that whole last couple of episodes was kind of a padding thing, but it did add to the story. So I'm not too upset by it. It's just an abbreviated form of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Both. Yeah, I wouldn't really call it padding, but yeah. Yeah. You still, even though you have the uh, all the evidence you need, you still got to catch them. Right. Yeah, and like I said, that 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 um, adaptation is reprinted in the booklet that came with that box set, and it also reproduces the spot illustrations. So I'll try to scan those for the show notes if anyone's interested in seeing them. Oh, that'd be cool. I'll have to pull mine out. Actually, you know what? I don't have the box. I wonder if I have the book somewhere. Or I'll just go to your site, greatcrypton.com. People, <laughs> check it out. You're welcome. Join David Ellis and Amy Morgan as they access 2099 Bitmap, a bi-weekly podcast exploring the world of Marvel 2099 through reviews and discussions. Download 2099 Bitmap at www.tfradio.net. December 7th. Earth 2. 
1941. A world very much like our own, yet slightly different. A date which will live in infamy. A world at war. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Following the Japanese sneak attack on Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt brought together the largest group of mystery men ever assembled to battle the Axis powers. Tales of the Justice Society of America presents The All-Star Squadron. Tales of the Justice Society of America, every Friday at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Well, thanks everybody for joining Charlie and I for this episode. Next time out, I'll be by myself again and we'll look at Action Comics number 24. And Charlie will be back in two episodes. Charlie, why don't you tell them where they can find your sites and your shows? Okay. Um, I've, first of all, I've got my newer show is Podcast of Justice, which I co-host with Isaac Frisbee, talking about Justice League all the way from the beginning. Uh, which which is awesome. Thank you. Uh, we've only had one episode so far, but by the time this episode comes out, we should have uh, the second one. Um, and that's at podcastofjustice.blogspot.com. I've also got uh, my main show is Superman in the Bronze Age, which by the time this comes out, I will be co-hosting with J. David Weeder. And that show is at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com, and that covers Superman, believe it or not, in the Bronze Age from late 70 to about mid-86. And then beyond that, I'm on this show once in a while to talk about the radio show, and that's at greatcrypton.com, which I already mentioned. Cool. As for this show, uh, I invite you to stop by the website at greatcrypton.com for show notes and past episodes. I'll be sure to try and scan the illustrations from that Radio Spirits uh, box set so you can see those. The site will also give you the iTunes link as well as the RSS feed if you want to subscribe to the show. You'll also find links to the show's Facebook and Twitter pages as well as the email address which is thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com Connect with me on either side or send me an email and let me know your thoughts. Don't forget to check out the Superman homepage where Steve Yunus posts updates whenever I have a new episode out. And don't forget that the show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. Both sites also have Charlie's Superman Podcast as well. So yes, yes. All both the shows that way. That's a great way, too. And I forgot that. <laughs> and last but not least, remember to check out Green Lantern's Light, 
which I'm co-hosting with Jeffrey Taylor and J. David Weeder. We're going to be discussing Green Lantern stories, starting with Green Lantern number 172 from 1983 and working our way forward. The, the very first episode's out now, so be sure to check it out. Yes, I'm downloading it as we speak. Cool. Well, once we finish talking. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. So thanks again for listening to The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, and I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. Deserted, all right. I'll try the bell. Hope somebody answers it. I'd hate to spoil this place by kicking in the door, and I do want to look around inside. Uh, what do you want, please? Oh, gee, you, you surprised me. Uh, can I come in? No. No? Uh, look, I'm from a newspaper, Daily Planet. No. Uh, wait a minute. Now, listen. How long since you've heard from your boss, Mr. Pemberton? No. Well, he evidently means no. Too bad, boy. If you don't want Clark Kent around, let's see how you feel about Superman. Might attract attention if I ruin the door. I'll just jump up on the roof and try the skylight. Here goes. And there's the skylight. Or rather, there was the skylight. Now, down the stairs to see what's what. <laughs> that houseboy sees me, he's certainly going to be surprised. This looks like somebody's room right here. And there's a desk, if the police have left anything in it. Hey, what you do there? How you get in? Oh, don't know me in my other clothes. You get out. Get out quick. Hey, put that gun down. You'll no go. I shoot. I count three. Make it ten. Make it a hundred. One, two, three. Oh, what's the matter? You no get hit. Come closer and try again. Come a lot closer and you'll see how bullets bounce. Hey. All right, that's enough. I haven't any time to waste. Here's what happens to little Filipino boys who play with guns. Oh, oh, oh. You let go. Where are your bosses? Pemberton and Deneen. Quick, where are they? I not know. I not know. Don't tell me that. I can see it on your face as plain as day. Where are they? One more chance. Uh, telephone. Who's calling this house on the telephone? Answer it. No. I said answer it. And if it's either of your bosses, just act natural. Oh, please. No go to phone. Uh, they say... Uh, go on. What do they say? They say they kill me. Not over the phone. Get that receiver. Oh. And do just as I tell you. Go on. Uh, Hello, please. Hello. Is that you, Sitter? Uh, yeah. This is me, boss. Now, listen. So just as I tell you, and do it fast. Okay, boss. Look in the desk in my room, and back of the second drawer, you'll find another drawer. You get that? Yeah, I get it. Now, in that drawer is an envelope with traveler's checks. Get it and put it in the mail. Ask him where he is, quick. Boss, where mail to, please? Address it to John J. Jones, General Delivery... 
Canyon City, Idaho. You got that? Yeah. That all, please? That's all. Uh, anybody been at the house? Say no. No, boss. Okay. If anybody comes and asks for me, say you don't know a thing. So long, Peter. Ah. Traveling under the name of Jones, is he? And he'll touch at Canyon City, Idaho. Much obliged, Sita. Oh, you hear that? Never mind. But get this. You saw how those bullets bounced off my chest. Yeah, I see. Well, I'm going now. But if you breathe a word about my coming here today, I'll be back. No, 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 I don't tell. That's good. Because if you do, if you ever tell anybody, I'll come back here and bounce you off the sidewalk the way those bullets bounced off me. No, All no. All right. Only be sure you remember it. Now I'm leaving you. Up through that skylight the way I came in. So long, Sita. <laughs> what luck. Canyon City, Idaho. And I bet I scared that houseboy out of a year's growth. <laughs> <laughs> 